Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. This is episode 203, and we are re-recording because I had a user error the other day. So I was so interested in what Thomas was talking about, and today is Thomas Jockin. So we are tr going to try and redo uh, our awesome interview that we had on Wednesday, doing it today. So. Thomas Jackin is the founder of Type Thursdays, as well as a type designer and a regular designer, but he designs typeface. He's also worked on the Google SWAT team. And so there's a lot of really cool, interesting things that we're going to talk about. So I don't want to um, give too, too much away. Let's get started and jump in. So Thomas, give us a little bit of your background and um, how, when did you fall in love with type? Well, Diane, thank you again for having me. I, uh, I hope we can recreate the magic <laughs> of the first time when we were together. Um, so the question was, how did, I get, how did I find type design? How did this happen? Well, the short answer is I was always interested in art. My background was mainly in painting. That's what I wanted to focus on. Uh, but then I went to basically, I went to, I basically applied to all the art schools in New York because I'm from Long Island, New York, 50 miles out east. Parsons was the one that had the best scholarships. So I went there. And in my sophomore year, I made the choice to go into communication design and I met a type designer. And that's what changed everything. Because up until then, type design was really not part of the equation in any way. Right. It wasn't so in your ballpark. You no. didn't, right, yeah. No. It was a, a type designer named Joshua Darn. He had just started his foundry about, I think, probably a year, I think probably a year or two before, uh, at that point. And I fell in love with what his way of his way of thinking, his way of considering how he thought about type, how he discussed it. It was completely nothing what I expected. Um, and I was basically then in that first. I remember the end of that first, probably that first class. If not, if not that first semester, definitely I was like, "This is what I'm doing. I want that mind. Whatever. How I, I don't know what it's going to take, but whatever. I, I want that mind and this mind at 19. I knew that much. Which. So I, which was amazing at 19 to be that committed or that interested in something and not wishy-washy because that was it before. So this was sophomore year of college. Yeah. Freshman year, you told the story where you were like, somebody told me I was the, not the best drawer or whatever. Right. Well, here's the thing, actually. So in the painting drawing classes, I was awesome. Like, right. cause that, that was my natural affinity. I mean, that's <laughs> kind of what I was about. Uh, especially the painting and even even the color theory classes like just in terms of the application of color and how to consider it and, and be sensitive about it I had all of that it was just when it was like hardcore execution like drawing 50 squares of lines right like that like if my I'm kind of I think this is kind of why I work for myself I, I, I start independent ventures is because I'm not I'm very rebellious the personality in the sense that if I don't buy into what you're telling me to do, I will, I will just rebel and fight out <laughs> right? <laughs> completely. Um, so I just had constant fights with my professors back in my freshman year. And I was constantly being like ridiculed and talked down <laughs> uh, by the professors and, and, and kind of within the social, to the social totem pole of the class. It was like, I was, I, I was friends with the, with like the best, the, the, I guess we can call it the cool designers. I, I, they, they, were, they knew my potential. They were cool with me. Uh, but in terms of the, when critiques would go down, I'd be constantly like shut down and just like crushed. I would like walk out of class with like C's all over the place. But it was uh, it's so mechanized. And that was what you didn't necessarily yeah. like. You liked the more 
um, the painting and drawing that you could kind of uh, be more free flowing or organic maybe, right? That's exactly it. Yeah, it was like, I hate using a left brain, right brain conversation. I was getting confused which one, even which one's which, but uh, definitely like more like sensitivity, awareness, kind of totality thinking. It's when you ask me to go really this, it's like this versus this. When it's this, I was just my natural ability. That's why I grew, I was, why I was in art and design. When this comes in, it just doesn't really, it didn't run me the right way, which is incredibly ironic that I became a type designer <laughs> when it, like so much of it is this all the time. It's really funny. Right. So then we also talked about one of the things that pulled you in to design was the social aspect, right? Because you thought, yeah. oh, so what was your reasoning? Yeah. So what happened was when I was debating where, which major you're going to select, because in your freshman year, it's a general, everyone takes it. All of the design majors take right. the freshman group. So you have fashion design people. Some people know what they wanted to be fashion designers, architect. I was waffling between the two, like the fine art department or design. I went, I visited the chairs of the departments. I asked for appointments, got them, and I got tours of their of the classes happening there and talked to the chairs um, of those departments. And the main note I noticed from the main emphasis from the fine art professor, the instructor, the chair was it's very isolating. You're just like. And for some people, they love that, that you're in a room and you're painting. And then right. you, come, you right. come together for the exhibition or for critiques with your class. And then you go back to the studio and then you just plop around and you just do your thing. Um, very isolating. Where just, the amount of social context not that much. But from design, I just knew from talking to people about it, there were so many players involved. There's printing, and there's copywriters, and there's, it's, a, it's inherently a, select, a collaborative episode. And that's what I was like, oh, it's super exciting. I love people. I love socializing. So that's fantastic. Uh, Again, that's the irony. That's why in type design, it's uh, you you go fully into that in a box forever, and then you pop your head out like once every couple of every once in a while, and that's why Type Thursday got started. So, but but going back yeah. your sophomore year, you started that year, um, which I think is the social aspect of learning, but it's really intense learning. You started being an apprentice, and you apprenticed for three years at your uh, professor's. Uh, company, right? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of nice having a second redo because we get to just <laughs> kind of refresh we the points. We go straight, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, so what happened was at the end of the first semester in my type one class with Joshua Darn, I made my commitment. I basically went to my chair. I said, okay, what do we need to do for internships? Got the paperwork done. I, I rolled up the Josh last day of class and I was like, Josh, I'm working for you. And the conversation, I'm doing it for credit. You don't have to pay me. Here's the paperwork. It's already signed by the chair. You just have to sign it. So I kind of gave the guy no choice. He was going to have to hire. He was going to have to get me in there. Um, after the first semester, he was like, they're good. It's fine. You're, you're, you're enthusiastic. You want to move this, make this happen. You're in. And that became the sort of a three-year apprenticeship in type design. So I just want to clarify, what was it that just got under your skin that you just knew you had to gnaw deeper at this like what was it because that's really early on and we talked about this the other day that it was like a marriage I mean you have been committed to this and you were really young when you made this commitment yeah you know yeah I understand well let's see it's hard to describe in some ways I think the main point I think the what drew me in this was one was the expectation my expectation of typography when I was preparing for the class 
was a super mechanic. Like I thought I was going to fail out. I was going to like it. So I like studied all summer to like prepare for this and try to compensate for my, my obvious weakness in this field. And then Josh came in with this, it was like, you know what it was? It was like this certain, it's like great athletes, like great athletes who do these things that are super precise and very technical, but they do it. They seem so effortless in how they do it. They like, they transcended the, this into rawness. They have a certain agileness in their mind and a way of thinking. They can mm-hmm. take in all these data points of, because what type design really ultimately is, is this intersection of bigger ground space relationships, which is what painting deals with. That's what painting, drawing all deal with. Right. Uh, language, linguistics, and computers and technology, computer science, technology, right? Imagine the modern edition of it, what we have in the, since the 1980s. Um, that's an incredible weird intersection, a lot of different things. And how it gets expressed requires a lot of different hats of knowledge along the way. And that's a, as a, as a 19 year old, I saw like this, the, my chair, my communication design at the graphic design department, right? At Parsons, he's, when he found out I do, I was doing his apprenticeship because he was the one who hired Josh to teach. He was, he basically, he said essentially that was an excellent choice. I have yet to ever meet a, a, a dumb type designer. All of them are incredibly intelligent and you have to be because of the amount of knowledge you have to absorb in, in game. And have any kind of mastery in it, it requires that. Like I said, you're literally like a high performance athlete in that way. Like that, so it's 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 a, and you can see that specifically in how they look at type and how they consider it, because that's the other side of it. There's like the raw knowledge, right? Of like this is great potential if you choose to commit to it, so you can get out of it. Mm-hmm. The other side is, it's like the language and writing is some it's a technology we've had for civilization's time, right? So as a result, we're so used to it. It's just normal. It's like a cell phone now. It's like a cell phone used to be the, at one point was this revolutionary technology. Now it's whatever. It's just move right. on with your life. Right. However, uh, watching how these designers thought about type and you can like, drill down on this old information, observations about it, and something that we thought I thought was all air, right? This kind of observing reality in a way that was just that was always there, but you never saw it. I always I was incredibly drawn by that. You know, and that like this, this promise that if you train and cultivate yourself, you gain this new knowledge and this new ability to see things that were always there, but not accessible to you. That's for me, the two parts of the design I thought was really interesting. Did you see yourself as different than your, your counterparts, that your, your fellow students? Mm, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I would say. I was very, let me put it this way. I think I was a very high, strong person. <laughs> I was a very go-getter, hustler, go like action-packed kind of guy, and kind of a dork to top it off. Like I was super serious. Like I had absolutely, it was I was all business all the time. That did not mean very endearing to the group, based to the clap my my peers, a lot of ways, uh, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, ironically, within the type design community, I'm like the most loosey-goosey of the group. <laughs> so it's like I never really belonged anywhere. You know, I, I've, I, I've constantly had this issue of always feeling I never really belonged, right? Uh, I, I was like a little too hot for this. I was a little too cool for that. <laughs> it, was, it, it was always a very bizarre scenario. So that, but that's why in that, in that context, uh, I think the biggest gift Josh ever gave me was his investment in me, right? He kind of mm-hmm. created this space for me and really invested me for this long period of time in a way that way beyond any kind of mercantile exchange of just an intern. Like I, I purposely call it an inter- a master apprentice relationship because it really was not an internship right. style of thing. Like, you know what, how you know? is because how giddy are you to do the trash? That you have the trash, they go deposit a check, 
Like I was actually enthusiastic about it. How interesting is that? Like versus like an in, you ask an intern to do it, they'll do it, but they're not exactly like enthusiastic about for that behavior or that request. Versus me, I'm like, oh, I'm helping Josh. This is awesome. I can do whatever, whatever, whatever it takes to help Josh. I'm here for him. You know what I mean? But was, that's that's maybe one of your superpowers because a lot of people don't look at it like that. They just see it as a duty. But if you're working for an entrepreneur, and I, you are entrepreneurial for sure. Those things have to get done. Is that the best use of Josh's time to take the trash out? No. So you are helping his business go forward by doing those things and depositing the checks and do it. And, and I feel like a lot of times the people feel like, Oh, I'm just getting the grunt work. But if they did, if you didn't do it, then the person who runs the business would have to do it. So I feel like um, it's one of those aspects that you really have to, to come in knowing not what's in it for me, but how I always feel like this with any, you are not applying for a job. You're applying for how you can help somebody's business grow. You're, you have to be a, a different cog. You can't just be a regular factory worker doing the same thing that three other people in the company are doing. Yep. I mean, that, that's, that's a very true wisdom, but it's very hard. I mean, that's, I think the only reason why in 19, I had that mindset was because there was this larger commitment to something much, much larger. I mean, that's it related to, there was a Q&A we did in the last recording, right, where the question was about inspiration and how do you manage that from just being a copycat. I mean, the, the preface I replied back was, what's your length of investment, you know? Hmm. Like for me, design is not this nine to five job I do, right? It's this like profession that like I'm dedicating 30 right. to 50 years of time towards, and this is towards that project in some way. It's a much larger scale of thinking than just like a check to pay for the weekend. You know what I mean? Like it's a it's order to scale of thought. It's told, it was totally different. I didn't well, even I, know at the time. And we talked about this the other day is that, and I said, well, how did you make it? You know, how were you able, because then you worked for maybe another couple of years for Josh after you graduated or you worked. No, I, I basically, I was off to the wilderness. So, oh, but you were uh, yeah. still learning and, but you had this commitment that you had to do 10 years, right? Or was training. it? Yes, it was 10 years. 10 years of training. And so, and I said, well, gosh, you know, that is a very unique perspective. Most people are like, whatever, I'm going to make $40,000 and I'm going to go out and I'm not going to, um, I'm, you know, you're really held down at school a lot of times because of so many commitments that you have to do. And it's a lot of learning and then you just want to go and play and rest, you know, a lot of people, but you did not have that mentality, which again is, I think is so amazing and unique and what makes you as, as strong as you are now, because I do believe you're like an athlete, a professional type athlete. I guess so. <laughs> I mean, there were consequences. I mean, listen, I say this, there were consequences. I think the biggest one, I'll be, I'll be frank with you was, uh, 2008 when I grad, I graduated undergrad in 2008 and what happened was quite frankly I, I, I got overconfident in the sense that I thought Josh was going to hire me full-time mm. but then the floor dropped out Josh could not do it and I was just and instead of me preparing like watching my other my grad my fellow graduates get their plan to get their stuff together to, to get out there I was just sitting back I can't, I took a, I think a month on vacation too by the way like I was so, I was so overconfident that this is, I was going to be perfectly great and fine Right. So when I come back from the trip, you know, I, I basically had a panic attack because it's like the biggest issue was it's not here's the thing. In my this was the crisis at the time I had invested at that point, like for my entire undergrad career, instead of going out, instead of socializing, instead of all that, 
I like every available moment I was at that studio training. You know, every every holiday there, mm. every weekend there. You know, between classes there. It was a full full commitment on that process. So as a result, then like when you end when you do all that work and then you end up in the same position as someone who was just hanging out and dicking around, quite frankly, for four years. It's kind of like, why did you even bother, dude? Like, what was the what was the point? Now, obviously, I can say I you worked past that. But I'm being honest with you. That really was a challenging. That was a challenging moment at that time. That kind of so the there's ten, no guarantee of success. So the ten year thing kind of came later. No, like, that was part add, of it. Like oh. that was it was part of it. But in the face, I'm just saying during that commit. Even though I don't want to make it sound like there was no challenge along that way. You know what I mean? Like during that time. Mm -hmm. Right. But we talked about, I mean, 2008 is pretty much when everything, the economy started tanking and it was, and I said, well, how did you make it? And you, you said, you know, I was eating ramen or I was just happy to make $500 and I would do whatever I could. Right. To, yeah. to get to that point. Here's one thing I, I, I do myself, I give myself credit for. I always believed this. I don't know where I got it from. I just always knew it intuitively. The biggest investment is your time. Mm. If because I had this mindset of a 10 year commitment, I knew any time deferred away from that was not moving me towards that goal. Therefore, during what I usually happened was the bar of success got to get dropped dramatically. Basically, the, prior, the priority was you got to work in, in design and specifically in, in typography. Like as long as you're moving forward in that direction, you're golden. That's what matters. And because majority of your time is spent working, that's a significant amount of time. So it has. That's why it was a priority to get work in this field during that time. So at least I can continue investing towards that goal. Uh, and that's why even like a $500 check, which I, which I laugh now at, I just like whatever. But back then it was a godsend, you know? Right. Uh, so yeah. so um, one thing I just want to make sure that we bring up, because I loved this when we did our test and I love this one we talked about the other day. Yeah. How painting, I said, well, because really you were a painter and that seems really kind of far away from typography to me um, until you explained it and it was about the texture. Can yeah. you explain how you were a painter and then you became the typographer and how that um, met those same needs? Yeah. Because the question you asked me was, do, do I paint still? And the answer right. is no, I haven't painted in like <laughs> eight years it's been, or whatever it's been. It's been a huge amount of time since I painted. And the answer was because the itch that painting served, the type design is serving an itch. So I had I basically here, I'll make, I'll do a share screen to explain what I mean by this. Great. All right. So load it up. Okay. Do, do, do. Got it. Okay. So I pulled up Cezanne, a Cezanne painting, mainly because he, Cezanne for me was always my inspirational painter. I always loved. And I'm using, I'll use him as a demo to explain what I mean. So for me, painting fundamentally comes down to a relationship to parts of the whole. Right? How do the, the individual pigments of, of paint, of color, inter interact with each other and kind of create a, create a cohesive whole? So it's just kind of, you got to look at every individual part and then how those, those parts relate to the whole. Mm. Now, what was interesting about Cezanne particularly was at this, so this, he's following this tradition of painting. And one, and one of the things mainly in question at this point in the post-impressionist era was the question of observation, perception. And how does, how does representation and, and reality get represented to put pulled together. There's a tension in that. There's always been a tension of reality and representation, right? Because a, because a painting is not reality, it's a representation of it, you know? And the, and the tradition before, especially with the Impressionist 
was sorry, in the challenge was this idea of like the academic painting, right? This is a very top-down model. What is the right way to paint to represent reality and the models of ideas of thinking of that? The impressionists are challenging that in terms of what could be painted in what context and what methodology, specifically the idea of exposing the materiality of how things are made, right? Post-impressionism, in this case, Cezanne, kind of took that idea and pushed it even further as a way of exploring. And what I love about it is that Cezanne actually doesn't even resolve his conflicts. He has his tensions in his paintings of, un of things that are unresolved because he's dealing with right now this biggest, one of the basic issues of observation is that a painting is a, a singular image, yet her eyes look at two images at once, right? We have a left eye and a right eye, and we have to use both pieces of information together to create the image of what we're seeing. So inherently, there's actually a certain falsity in the illusion of one painting, of one still image representing reality. That's why in his paintings, there's, there's a certain flatness happening. His solution to that, that crisis was a certain flattening of space and focusing on, on, mod, on the modulus of color to how the space speak of those relationships and how those parts play with each other. And for me, I found that, that but it's unresolved. It took the next generation of painters to take that idea and where's where cubitism comes and every, all the other modernist painting models come from. That's what I love about it. It's like this clearly thinking of intentionality of space and relationships and how parts relate to other parts. So it's very much this, both this very specific focus and this very broad sensibility at the same time. And that's what type design does for me too. Because in type design, you have the negative space and the positive space. And you talked about this the other day. It was really, it's about creating words and creating these um, combinations of these letters, not necessarily... Um, you really do have to think of it as all the parts how, and how they work together as a whole, right? Yes, that's, that's absolutely correct. Here, I'll take this chance to talk about the Google Font Swap Team project. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So yeah. How, how did that come about? How so what, yes. So let's see. Uh, I'm going to pull up. Let's see. Okay. Give me a second. Where are you? Okay. So see, this is new stuff. We didn't get to look at this yeah, slide the other day. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Yeah, because I think this, I think these slides actually do a better job explaining what's going on. Okay, so what happened was uh, Google Fonts, everyone knows it. And here, I'll turn off my share for a second. And I'll switch back home when I'm ready to talk about the project. Um, so Google Fonts is one of the most popular APIs of Google's basic services, right? Because mm -hmm. fonts are everywhere. It makes up the web, right? And they offer, and they offer a great service, which is basically you want to use fonts for the websites. And you want to make it very easy and straightforward to do. They offer that service. Here was the downside. The problem was because they wanted to scale really rapidly. They basically, it was quite frankly, really janky production. Like they just like, it was just mass scale. Don't worry about quality. Just make a lot of stuff, get it out the door. The, the team behind the Google fonts knew that, but they made, they made a conscious decision of strategy to do that. Now that they reach a certain level of scale, they've circled back and last summer, uh, I was selected as a part of a group of international type designers in different countries. Uh, you're in a, uh, Europe, India, uh, Russia, uh, Vietnam. We're all brought together in New York for a week-long conference. And we basically decided as a group, like the, the assignment was how can we improve Google Fonts based on the allocation of time. We were mm -hmm. high, being hired for three months, each of us. And they were saying, okay, what can you guys do in three months to improve the collection massively? And what we mean by improvement, quite frankly. Um, there was a whole lot of debates and conversations within the group. It was a super. It was a really fantastic team. It was led led by David Crossland, who is part of Google now, and the whole team of. Uh, as I talked in the last session, we did. I showed some of the work the other team members did. Mm -hmm. um, basically, we came to the conclusion 
at least the way uh, there were a bunch of directions. One was was language support. Basically, the more the because a lot of times people would try to use Google Fonts and they had it, it was it didn't support their script, like right. the, the language they used, even in just the Latin alphabet, basically. Uh, and they got hosed because of that. They couldn't use the font. There's right. that side. But the problem, the busy problem we had was, wait a minute, if you just like take janky ass janky fonts and just extend the language support, is that really worth our time? Is that worth right. really? Because <laughs> um, the other position, and we pushed really hard as a team, was there's fundamentals of type design that if we apply this, will significantly improve the quality of Google fonts. Because as a basic problem is that these were these were not experts who produced the work most of the time. Right. And there's a base of knowledge that we've cultivated that we are given the platform to execute on. This is, and this is not very glamorous work. I'll explain in a minute when I go over my slides, but it's not glamorous work, but it has compa compounding effects. A lot of little decisions have a huge effect. So if you don't mind, I can, sh I can show you on the yeah. screen now. So how many people were asked? How many people were part of the team? It was five of us. I believe, wait, I think five designers and two engineers. Okay. So then you come together for a week and you had incredible conversations and then you go back to your home countries. Yeah. You, you just go to your I house. I was in New York. Yeah, right? I was in my studio. <laughs> right. Yes. Go back to your studio and then you start working. That's correct. And how did you decide? So I think you're going to pull up some how you decided on who worked on what. Well, a couple of decisions. One was um, first we made a decision of looking at, because the big issue is this is open source. This is all open source stuff. It was very educational because you learned that there's a certain technically you can use any open source font and do whatever you want with it, right? That's the basic idea. However, there is an idea of like authorship. Mm -hmm. There's still authorship in open source stuff. So you can grab whatever open source font you want, but if you don't really have the blessings of the author who originated it, you don't get to do the definitive new edition of it. This is actually a very interesting idea. Um, so what had to first happen was we had, to, we had to pick out the ones that we could access the authors and get their blessings to even review them. Then we cross-reference that to popularity. Basically, Google has all this information about who's using the fonts. And we basically, we basically the most, because we, we want to be most effective, right? We right. want the most used fonts. So we cross-reference those two, two data points and put them together. Um, so from there, it came down to the group kind of review the collections. And the big part, basically, it was like whoever called it got it. And I think that's oh. really important because it's like who... Here, I'll show you. So here, now I'll show up my, my share screen to explain. Let's see, do, do, do. where are you? Okay, so one of the fonts that I selected was Quicksand. Mm -hmm. And when I saw this, you know what's so funny? It was funny, like I saw it and I had an instantaneous like, yes, I see what it's trying to do. It's kind of hilarious, <laughs> like from my perspective on some, on some aspects of it, but I see what it's trying to do and I see its potential. If I just take this and just like, polish it up, it's going to be a whole other level of design, in my opinion. Um, so I just called it. That's basically, that was, that was the conclusion of it. And each team member did that, basically. So that's actually really important, because you need that kind of passion behind it to push you. Because you only got three weeks to do it. So you've got three weeks to try to hit these typefaces as hard as aggressively as you can. And we did a, a two-prong two strategy. One was accent, accent character support mm -hmm. up to being minis. So these languages all, all go up to Eastern European, Turkish, and, and, and Vietnam, uh, which is the most, pretty much the most advanced level of, of Latin support you can do uh, as, a, as a baseline. So that's a pretty large character set. I think that's like 750 characters. Wow. Something like that. 
per style. So when you could have multiple styles, it just multiplies relatively quickly. Um, and styles meaning like light, bolt, right? Yes. Weights, right? Correct. Yes, okay. weights and, and italics, if that's right. included too, um, which then can double compound things. So there's that prong of the attack. The other one is these fundamental design principles. So here's quick sand the original when I saw it. One of the first things that immediately drew to me was a couple of parts. Part one was like how tracked out it was. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like you're in a sandstorm and it's like letters are being blown all away from each other, which is a cool effect, but it just, I, I knew it limited usage, you know, because also big probably know the letter spacing in CSS. It's very coarse. It's like, it just jumps so quickly. You don't have mm-hmm. the same kind of finance, uh, fin- finesse in your letter spacing abilities. You do in print technology, the print t- in the print world than you do in web. So it kind of inherently limits how you can use this. Uh, I'm of the opinion you're better off taking a, a, a normal space typeface and track it out if you want to get this effect versus the other way. Like you'll have less error of problems that way. Um, what was something ooh. else that you saw that you oh, there's thought? Whole, oh, there's a whole bunch. Okay. So here, let me roll up. So this was the before. And then let me pull up the after. I think it's 20. Yeah, come on. Find you. Think, wait. Wow, there it is. Spacing really helps because again, we read, we actually don't read individual letters. We actually yeah. read the shape of the word, and so they did a study at Cornell where you can actually, if your first letter and the last letter are correct, you can actually read it even if it's all jumbled up. You can still read; it's slower, but you can still read the word. Yeah, because that's what the human eye does. It takes it takes approximations and kind of smashes it all together. It's kind of amazing. It's really kind of amazing. It, it is. Of, uh, the human body, human mind, and eye that he can do that. Uh, but you also seem like you in, extended the um, counters in a lot of spaces so that it was easier to see. Because the F, when you would get into that black or the extra bold or whatever before, it was really falling apart. So you extended some of those, the letter forms, and then made it so that the the counters were a little bit bigger, more open. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot going. There's a lot of fun. A lot of fundamentals. So here, I'll switch back to the original to switch the show. So the first thing that happened was, yeah, obviously there's a general spacing. But here's a big thing too. If you look at here's this is a phenomenon of the human eye. When you look at the lightweight in this example, do you see how much bigger that letter M looks, for example, mm. compared to the lower the M in the bold? Yeah. It's because the human eye is looking using this negative space around a letter to infer its like relative size. So if you if all the if the typeface is the same x height and you don't make compensations for that, it's the bowls feel smaller. Hmm. Like the, basically, your eye it, it creates a kind of a smaller x height effectively. So sometimes you want that intentionally, but I felt like the drum here is too dramatic. Like it's too it's like two different typefaces basically. It's like the lights like one voice and the bowl is a totally different voice for projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially combine that with there's a common theme in, in these projects, which was contrast. The idea of like the light, when you have a lighter weight, you, you have less contrast between the thicks and thins. Like the thinnest part of the stroke and the heaviest part of the stroke. Uh, I'll, use the, I'll use the N, the M, as, I'll use the A actually, the A is a good example. So if you look at where the, the bowl, the round strokes connect with the straight stroke, I wonder if I can zoom into demo, low res, yep. but hey. Okay, um, it's not the best, you should, some contrast should exist there, but it's okay. Uh, but when we get to when we get down to the heavyweight, it just blobs, basically just gunk. I call it's called dipping in chocolate. That's the phenomenon <laughs> we talk about. Like you took the letter, you dipped it in chocolate, and if everything gains weight at the same momentum, the same amount, it just blobs up everything. 
-hmm. it creates it's almost if you think in musical terms it makes it like a a dull note like the Mm -hmm. notes not it's not right the right ping of a note it's not like uh tuned right basically so there are spacing considerations and contrast considerations so here so what ends up happening is by but I also knew this was kind of meant for display. It's kind of a display. That's why I chose for a relatively tight spacing. So that basically the space between the letters is smaller than the space inside the counters. And display, just for anybody who's brand new, display would be for not for body text, correct? Yeah. Yeah, as a default. I mean, you could do, you could do strategies that make this work at a smaller setting. Uh, but it's kind of, I, I'm, I kind of saw its potential mainly in like a, yes, like a, like a 16 point up kind of right. environment. Um, so what we can see, one note you can tell is kind of looking at M, for example, do you see, notice how like not blobby it feels anymore? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have that same kind of effect. It kind of just, it snaps in mainly because of where thick strokes connect with the lighter strokes. It snaps right. into the right amount. Uh, another, let's see. And then just also proportions too, like how the T was drawn. It is kind of like give it more. It doesn't feel so top heavy, like all like all over the place. And the S was a big one. S's are actually very very challenging to draw. And if I show the demo, so the S's, especially in the bold way, did, you have a problem where you have when you add contrast, like way to a S. Where does the priority go? Like mm-hmm. which part is the most important part of the stroke, and which one's secondary and tertiary? Like what is the order of importance? Usually, you want the spine to be the heaviest, and then you kind of work backwards based on that. Uh, also, just proportionally, it's, let's put it this way. It's like the top, like the S's, the light S's are just basically, again, it's the same phenomenon on the N and the M. It, they seem bigger. Mm-hmm. Like they seem like they take up more space in the bolder version. Uh, Versus in the addition I did, uh, the rev- revisions, I kind of, I regularize them more together so that they feel like the same size. Like they're getting weight, but they're also the same letter. That's the same, that's the same size. Yeah, much, much better there. Yeah. So that's an example. And some other, some other like more in, in, like inside, inside. This is more, this is a very dramatic uh, change up, but more kind of more nuanced points. This is one of my, this is actually one of my favorite demos. This is like fun type design nerd action all the way. <laughs> it's, there's, it's the peso currency. So the peso is a version where you have two horizontal strokes across the P. The top example is what happens if you don't do any, any optical corrections to compensate for that. Uh, what ends up happening is there's too much black and not enough white in the sacred ground space. So it just looks blobbed up. And this was set in any kind of medium setting. It doesn't, it's not going to work. It's not going to be that effective. So I have here, basically the, on the top, we see the ex- cross section and then in, the, kind of the, the, the bars pulled to the side to show you what, what's going on there. Below is what the adjustments I did. I kind of create like these barbell effects. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is a trick type designers do when they, when they have complicated forms like this and heavier weights. Your, the human eye doesn't really care, as you said about like reading words and sentences. It really doesn't care what's in the middle as long as the totality kind of hits what you're looking, what you're expecting. So you can remove some weight from the middle parts of the stroke, all those cro- diagonal, those uh, horizontal strokes, get some white in that counter, and still be able to read it as a peso, and have it harmonize really well. And then I have an overlay to the to the right to show what got changed between the two. Yeah, huge difference. And the counters just opening up that space, having more contrast between the negative and the positive space allows you to understand what that is. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
it's funny because you would only notice if I pointed it out to you and it had the super large, like in any kind of setting and text, it's most likely you would never even notice it, which is fun. That's why right. I, I, that's why I love type designs. You do these tricks and like no one even notices it. It's, it's fun. Um, some other notes about all as well, like extended character sets. So working with non extended Latin. Here's an example. These are Ognex. So this is used in Polish, I believe. And uh, the examples in the middle are the before. Examples on the left side are my adjustments. And then the right is the overlay. So traditionally, Ognex should come from the end of a stroke. It's like as if you were drawing with a pen. And mm. at the end of the stroke, that needs to hook over. So if it doesn't, if it feels too abrupt, like this is what you can't just snap it on, especially to a rounded letter, like a, a, a terminal with a rounded stroke, you have to render, you actually have to draw it in a way that feels somewhat natural in some way uh, coming off the stroke. And it's especially true in the like, lowercase e. Like it has to be like part of the upper stroke of the e and then come back down again to feel like, an, like a proper ogonek in this case. So this is some examples of the before and after adjustments. Uh, but between the two. Again, that's knowing about how people write it. And I don't know if you ever had done work before. I mean, clearly when you're designing type, you're designing these parts. But, you know, you have to really be able to be passionate about other, other people and how they use these letter forms or how these were created in the beginning to be able to do something like this that is more. Because granted, after you tell me this, the E that they originally came up with looks ludicrous because why would you pull this from the middle of the E, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's just, no, again, it's, so that's the thing. It's like, there's like this hidden knowledge that you mm -hmm. have to gain. And that's, again, this is, it's, it's kind of, this is why I like this project. And I, and I really believe it in, in terms of these fundamental, like it's kind of these type design fundamentals. This is mm -hmm. not very really glamorous work because like most type designers are like, oh, you want to do your own creative vision and whatnot. But I believe it, I believe in the fundamentals that you, if you apply the fundamentals, they have a huge effect. And I think these are great examples of it. I'll close with like base, the, with the last example, which is like some simple things like an at sign and a, and a Sterling symbol and, uh, or Libra, one or the other. Anyways, <laughs> um, it, basically the example on the left is the original, the middle is the adjustment and the overlay between the two of them. So, the original, if you notice, like it's an italic, right? It's supposed to be italicized, but doesn't feel italicized properly. Mm -hmm. And you can look especially in like how the outer stroke of the, of the curl in the at sign, it just doesn't feel comfortable. Right. Actually, in my eye, I can actually see them. It's kind of like the outer strokes are going one momentum and the inner strokes are not matching. And they're actually a little flat. Like they're almost like a diamond shape like this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's super, it's, so in my eye, so my adjustments kind of just kind of, get it to feel like more like a continuous stroke. You want to kind of create some momentum energy inside that, uh, that symbol. In but it way. feels like it's the same energy, both the inside and the outside. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then the, the Sterling is a, another example where basically I thought, I thought the original was just like a little too simple, like considering the, the other moves and the profile of this design, it's kind of warm and friendly and that certainly it's just still blunt. Mm. <laughs> it's just like, jerk, like just like that main spine stroke. It's just so straight. And I'm like, this, we got to do something with it. Like we got to like, that's the thing I, I tell my students when, I, when they do type design, um, like type design is not just letters. It's not just A to Z upper and lower case. It's all this other stuff. It totally counts and it actually affects the flavor of your type design. Even right. though you may, it may only show up in one in particular context, you're, these are actually opportunities to change the flavor of your typeface. And you have a certain soul and spirit you're trying to convey 
across not just these, you know, the basic character set, but a much larger symbol, symbols and numerals and whatnot that you want to carry that through as much as you can. Uh, so here's an example where I just added a little wiggle to that spine to <laughs> get some, get some flavor into that bad boy. So that's just, I, I kind of like as an example of that. I love that. That's great. And that's really good to know about the spirit and the soul because it is when we're as a designer, when I'm choosing type, if I choose one typeface versus another, we totally get it. It says something else. But even in that characteristic of it not fitting as a whole, you know, each piece has to fit within that family of that typeface. And you're absolutely right. It did feel way abrupt. And the other one's a little bit more lighter and uh, is a little bit more fun and free flowing instead of so it was like you had this one kid who just always followed the rules and then never had any fun. You know, the first uh, Sterling sign. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> yeah. So that's, that was the main project, you know, and I think that the work done with the other team members were also really, again, they were really focused on fundamentals, but I think they did a great job. So some quick examples was my team member Kalabi. He worked on, uh, I don't have my notes on me right now. So I don't remember which typeface this is, but here's the before. Whoops, hey, come back here. Oh no, I don't have the other slide. Actually, or do I? Yep, there it is. Great. <laughs> and that's the after. Um, so some really fundamental, just like curve, this contrast and just like curve momentums and some proportion adjustments, just to kind of, again, kind of snap it in to kind of tighten it up and get some snappiness into it. And it was about the joining of those, the strokes, right? Again, yeah. just similar to quicksand, making those a little bit more sharper so that it feeds in. I guess those are tiny little things, but they make a huge difference as you place them all together. And so yeah. we talked about the other day and I can't remember what that symbol is, but it kind of, it's like a double S or something. Oh, the gazette. Yes. Yeah. Clearly I don't know what that's called, but that was a huge difference because it had like a descender before. Yes. Here's before. Yeah. Yeah, a whole bunch of things. Like also, you can also notice how the curves on the top are being like. Notice this top part of this curve, and compare that to the other one. Notice how much it just feels like its own. It's a bit a, a constant metaphor I use and thinking about type is like, does it own its space? Mm. Like type exists in a box. It exists in a certain space, right? Does it own its space, or is it just kind of like slumping there and just like hanging out right. know, in a not a very active way? So the yeah, it definitely issue, feels squished in this one. It doesn't feel like it feels like a. It's trying to fade into the background yeah. instead of being a, its own. Yeah. Much better. Yeah. Cause it just kind of fills its space much more, much more, much more effectively. Yeah. yeah. That's the kind of things I'm looking, we're looking for as type designers, what were these kind of a big theme is like intentionality. You know, mm -hmm. I, that's a big, big theme I talk about a lot when I teach people type design or type in general. It's what's the intention. And normally like what I find amazing in human beings is that you can create artifacts that have intention and someone can perceive that independently. I find that's kind of amazing. I've always seen that. I've always noticed that's been the case. And uh, I think it's these kind of projects that show that, demonstrate that level of intentionality is super rewarding, I think. Not very sexy, but I think very rewarding, ultimately. That's what design should do, is serve people. Jackson, sorry. I don't know. People have been walking, and he just started scrowling. Like, uh -oh. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he didn't trust that person. Sorry. Or Keep he doesn't going. like fonts. I don't know. No, no, he's <laughs> fine with fonts. It was the person walking. So one of the, this one I think that was so is that there are 
maybe in the beginning, I think this is Pacifico, yes. in the beginning there are issues with readability or legibility actually, legibility of certain letters. The M or uh, the W, w. reads almost as an M, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so there's a certain, yeah, some ambiguities and some letter forms, how it connects with the other letter forms around it. There's some serious, there's some serious challenges in making script typefaces. It's very difficult. Right. Especially what this is called a semi-connected script. So meaning that some letters connect and some don't. Those are actually the most complicated scripts that produce in ty as typefaces. Uh, so it's very challenging. But before when they connected, it took put too much space in between. The counter was too big in between those two, or the counter space was too big between the W and the S. Yeah. And so switching it so that it's not connected made it so much more of a flow. Though it's a quicker read visually for a person. I, so I thought that was great. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great example. Like they, basically, a way a type design would a type design would look at this is looking at pairs of three. So in this case, the E, the W, and the S. We would look at those as a pair of three and and, and ask the question: Is the W sitting in the middle comfortably, or is it leaning too much to the to the E? It likes the, S? the E better than the S. Exactly. Just, the S smells, and it wants right. to go, it wants to go to the E. That's <laughs> so that's how we would look at spacing as a type designer. Yeah. And Jock, who worked on the project, you know, made adjustments based on making the W wider and making it not connect, for example. Uh, those two decisions, if you look at that pair, the W feels like it's sitting comfortably between the two, the E and the S. Absolutely. Yeah, precisely. So I think that's a, another great example of like these subtle differences have a huge compounding effect uh, to make the project more successful. So is it hard um, to work with the other parts of the language that are the symbols, characters that we don't normally use in our alphabet, is that harder for you or is it easier because you aren't coming in with some of the same, you know, misconceptions because you've used it your whole life? It's a little tricky. I mean, only because usually, for example, the Ogunek, right? Like you had to know it's, it had a calligraphic source mm. and you had to then extrapolate based on that. So it's actually, usually you get in trouble because you'll, you'll, like, you'll just like, Yes, and me, but there might be a not like kind of a cultural knowledge that you have to gain. This is this is why there's a certain level of linguistics in mm. type design. Like if you don't have that knowledge, you're really kind of shooting in the dark. And a great example of that was we did um, we did Vietnamese support on these projects. And I don't know Vietnamese. I never designed for those extended characters. I never did extension extension towards that language, mm. uh, that that script that uses Latin. So there are certain forms like it's called the horn which are, if you look at the U, you see these U's with this hook on the side coming out? Yeah, it's like a coffee mug. Yeah, it's like a little mug, handle. exactly. Yeah, and the, and the O, for example, that has that, that's called a horn accent. And then there's the hook, which is like this, looks like a question mark a little bit. Yeah. Like in the A. Yeah. How heavy should they be? What proportion should they be? How should they relate to the other accent characters in the script? I didn't know. So we had Young, who was a Vietnamese designer, who was on the team explicitly to help us out with that project. And she would jump in. I, this is one of the projects I worked on, Maven Pro. Um, there, there's an edition of it on Google Fonts, and it had enough popularity to justify improving it. So she, jumped, she helped me out with the support of it. And let's see. Let's see. Okay. So here's the, here's the before, like a draft, when I gave her a draft to work with. And this is the after. So if you look at the horn, for example, notice the horn went from on the O yeah. from the side to basically like a calic on the top. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'd done for probably most likely for spacing reasons. 
And the it, little question marks seem to get a little bit smaller. It's smaller and its proportions are different, treated differently. And it's considered it's actually, especially when you look at it combined with like the circumflex, for example. Yeah, mm -hmm. Is it Karen or circumflex? That's yeah, a Karen, isn't it? Oh, oh well, Karen. whatever. I don't know. Wait, circumflex, Karen. Yes, you're correct. Sorry. It's a Karen. Um, you may notice it's actually uh, smaller. It's slightly smaller. So that it's given it's a priority decision that which one matters more and this one matters second. Well, that's really important that you guys had other people from those languages to come and do that support. How often would you meet in that three-month kind of period? And clearly, it's online, right? Yeah, it's all online. I mean, at the, after the first week where we were, we had two, two week-long meetings in the beginning of the project and the end. The beginning was when we assessed the scope, and then the end was just reviewing what, what we did in last-minute reviews. Um, the, Young was part of the project the whole way through. And it was mostly online. So what would happen is she was doing her projects, working on that, and then we would basically ping her when we wanted to have a conversation with her or what we're doing, and she would make her assessments. Sometimes, she, And then sometimes she would jump in and, do, and rent, do the work, and then I would execute based, continue on that. Or she would give me advisement, for example, to, with me, and then I would continue forward based on that. Cool. Yeah. So that kind of brings me into this Type Thursday. So I yes. want to make sure we have 10 minutes left. I don't want to take too much of your time. Yeah. But how much does, and I want to make sure we do Fontribute. We talk about that as well. But so you have these people, you're working alone, but then you, you are coming together to get uh, out of your head because sometimes it's all about you. And the whole um the reason Type Thursday started was because you you need you were sitting alone. Now you need some feedback. You wanted critical feedback and analysis because sometimes we looked at something too long, and it started just with you and a couple friends going to a bar, right? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, it's. I think we we actually talked about this a little bit off like before we we signed on today this this morning, where you know for most people after after graduation they kind of stop learning. Mm. Right. They kind of just, that's it. Like they don't ever read a book afterwards. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of madness from my perspective, because, you know, as I said in the beginning, it's like design is not just nine to five job that you go to school right. once. It's a discipline that you have to constantly keep training and developing yourself. So originally type Thursday was, as you said, in a great summary, a place for, for me to show work in progress, especially for self-initiated work where I didn't have the, the, imperatives of client relationships that have to produce the work it would always push me every week every month to produce something that was my own and then show it to my type design crew and get their feedback and catch up and all that great stuff so we started you know if i can share the screen again you know it started just like out of bars like five of us and whatever and it would be so dark in the bar we would have to constantly use our cell phones as flashlights as you can see here like we see uh, a type designer who works a monotype now uh juan he uh he has his cell phone out, flashlighting, and I, I would constantly have my phone. It's the one, the green phone there. He would put it on top of the beer glass and put it on, and then it, created, it would create like a lamp effect. It was great. Um, I kind of miss those days a little. Those are, that's great. It's very scrappy. It's a very scrappy improv improvising. But it's and about it, passion, right? Yeah. It's that you guys were so passionate about, and, and you're coming in and you just need real feedback. And so I guess that that's another thing that, what what it seems like because i haven't ever been able to experience one but it seems like type thursday is you're coming in and you're not just wanting praise it's real critique of and it's not just type designers right it's it's yeah. type type users like me designers 
and then type people who are creating and then some people who are just learning more, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. So here's the thing, like there's a reason that I call those the show, like the uh, look at me, I'm special presentations. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we don't do that. Because the problem with type design is it doesn't work that way. It just, it's such a long arduous process of development. And it's kind of built into our culture. Like we have a thing called proofs where we have these kind of incrementally improving, we do more and more letters, right? Mm -hmm. We start with a very base level of letters to make some decisions and we expand out based on that. Along the way, it's inherently known these are, these are incomplete. So therefore, what can you show and tell? Like you can't, right. like, you can't get prou proud about it because it's not done yet. You know? And most likely there's gonna be gigantic contradictions and conflicts and ambiguities of what you're trying to do. So you might as well, like, why are you going to front like that? There's no gain, there's no value in that. So instead you just, you just acknowledge up front, Hey, this is what's going on. I, based on this objective of what I'm trying to do, mm. I think these, these things are working about it. I like these aspects of it. I think it's promising. I see potential in that, but it, there's also flaws. I see, I'm struggling with this. That's right. put on the table. That just came from just experiences critiquing where I just noticed people, most people can't critique. It just can't do it. It's a totally different skill set. Because most people, what they'll do is they'll just look at it, and then at best, they'll ask me one question. But they already made their decision. They're just asking the question to kind of get in the mode of starting to make their statements, their fiats of what needs to happen. And it's a lot of times, unless you're, you're trained to critique and how to critique in an effective way, it's basically thumbs up or thumbs down. Right. Based, based on some arbitrary decisions, usually. Um, that's but not very useful. But really, and as we had talked about the other day, it's really you know, content, but then context, how yeah. is this going to be used? And you also said a lot of UX UI people come to type Thursdays because they're, they're, they come with a different perspective on how we need this, this font to work or this typeface to work in this situation. Yeah. So here's a great example. I know there've been people like there've been, for example, as you said, you, you people in the UX and product design and whatnot, they come in and they see a, someone's showing a typeface that's meant for that usage. And then they have actually specific statements. Oh, if you're thinking for that, you're looking for how I would, you know, how I would use it. Well, I would consider X, Y, and Z. And I don't see, I don't see that in the font yet. You know, it's mm -hmm. like say a certain spacing or, or certain considerations they need to think about because they're not talking to a UX person. Right. It's, a, it's amazing how much we do our work and we just sit in our, in our caves doing our work and we don't interact with people. And that's what made Type Thursday so interesting is that it, per it brought in a large amount of people who, are, who come from their domain expertise. So even have someone who's a lettering person, like a calligraphy lettering person, and someone does a typeface that has some inspiration based on that, they'll give them references to certain sources of knowledge. Kind of mm -hmm. like I just like I did with the Ogunek discussion, for example. Or Absolutely. How you, like you only have that from a certain expertise level versus, or in case example, like Young went to the VMEs and the Google Font Project where she has expertise, I didn't know what to do, and she came in and gave me the input. But this is now on a public forum that gets shared to everybody. Yeah. Right, because, it's, because it is a community, because you can't do everything in a vacuum and it be everything for everybody. And I thought that that was a, that's a great aspect of Type Thursdays. And so a lot of times type designers are not, or, or regular designers are not like you and me, where we're a little bit more gregarious. And so this gives them a platform to show um, where maybe they're more comfortable, but then you're also, you kind of create the situation. So I asked you the other day is, so how does somebody, they just come with a jump drive and ready to go? It's not the way it works anymore, well, right? Let me, yeah, let me walk you through, the, I should walk you through like the evolution, right? Because right. in the beginning it was just, it was 
we were at a bar. How could we do that? <laughs> right. So it, it had to be printed out. You know, to the point where I started bringing a lamp with a, with to the to the to the event, so that we'd have proper lighting here in some scenario. It was hilarious. It would be hilarious. I would come with a lamp out of my backpack and then an extension <laughs> cord to, to connect it from the from the outlet across the bar. You know, and by and you know by like this point, this is like base. I think this is like month four at this point. We had gone so big that we were taking over bars. It was like thirty people at the bar. It was madness. There was no way to. Co- we couldn't even keep everyone coordinated together to talk about the project and then and it's it's williams it's brooklyn in new york so eventually people would be like hey what's going on what's all this big crowd about I, we would say what's going on and they'd be like oh we're graphic designers this is really cool we say come on in <laughs> to hang out so what ended up happening was uh and this is by the way like as we, we moved to another venue as we got bigger and bigger and as we held up pretty long with the print version Eventually, we did. We we started getting projectors. So yeah, you would eventually you would submit a PDF. You would show the PDF so that people could see. Um, we basically just kept growing and growing and growing, and eventually we got to like a point we we cured an exhibition. We had a party bus that bus everybody to the exhibition. That's cool. Yeah, it's madness. Uh, and now <laughs> finally, like at the first, and we're at now where it's very full. It's you know pretty large. It's like we, this is at Google. We were at Google in December. Uh, New York, and we have a projector set up, very large on a stage. We have a critique lead who has a, leads a conversation with the presenter, and it surprisingly held up the format really well in the face of all this growth. And that's and a really promising thing. And it's a limited time they have to present, right? So oh, that yes. you can get more than one person a night done. Oh, huge! You have to. You could, you could spend forever on a, on a critique. Right. Usually, it's fifteen minutes. Five minutes is a dialogue with a critique lead where they're going to ask the questions I pointed out. Like basically like, right. what are you working on? What's the context? Who are you? What are you trying to achieve with this? What's working based on what you're saying? And what can, what, what are you struggling with? What do you need to improve it on? And then they have it that the dialogue is completed. It's open up to the audience. And then the audience has 10 minutes. They go, they go up to the mic, like go up to a mic and they make their statements. And what's very fascinating from talking to people who've had critique done when they work past their, it usually happens at first people are a little nervous, especially at this scale. They get a little sure. about it. Um, but then they get really enthusiastic when they see how friendly and positive the overall vibe is. But very useful too, because what ends up happening is when someone makes a statement, there's a, when someone says a statement that usually a lot, a lot of other people were thinking, and they're kind of the representative of that statement, there's a certain buzz. Like you could feel a certain buzz in the room and people shaking, like nodding their heads like, yeah, yeah. And people who've been critiqued have shared with me that they've noticed that. Like, oh, wow, like this guy just said that and like the whole room just agreed to it basically. I should consider that. I should look into that. <laughs> so it kind of creates like this great mix of democracy, right, contribution democracy of a community together, but also de- helping you develop and cultivate your ability at the same time in a very positive way, constructive way. So let's talk about it from the audience perspective. So how does yeah. somebody come? So they – and now you guys announce it and then they just show up and is it ten dollars is it eighteen dollars is there a is there a membership fee yeah well great question so what we do is we have it's all online basically we're all follow us on our on our social media networks we have an eventbrite page for each chapter because we have chapters in new york san francisco and la and let's see yeah san francisco just happened it was it was this thursday and we do you sign up on eventbrite and it's a, we have three models. We have an early bird RSVP, mm-hmm. which is let's see, do, do, do. yeah, uh, an early bird RSVP that's for free. Then when that sells out, or basically before either sells out or two weeks before the event, there's a twelve dollar ticket, 
and then there's a last minute twenty five dollar ticket and, and and show up. So it allows us to be sustainable to pay for the expenses of the event, but also always be sure opening and, and, and making sure we we're never letting cost be a stopper for people to get involved and engage with the project. Uh, and these are, and so you're, you're not gonna, you get something to drink, right? You have yes. wine or uh, water, right? We talked yeah, about that's, even. That's why I think like it's not, we're very focused on hospitality. Very huge. I think a very big thing that makes Type 30 unique is it's one of those, it's one of those things that's like, you would never notice unless you actually went to it, mm. which is we're super focused on making sure people feel welcomed. And there's so many, there are so many subtle steps to do that. One is very simple, which is having nice food and drinks. Right. Mm -hmm. So for in the past, like I would make sure I'd, basically what I would do is I'd pay the tab of the bar, for example, we used to be at the bar or now in more formalized situations, we have, we have, we have water and beer, and beer and wine and make it a very social event. Uh, but also we have a team now of volunteers that are very coordinated and make sure that, for example, when you enter the space, you, you ever notice when you, go to a, when you go to an event, you feel that kind of awkwardness, anxiety, mm -hmm. when you first walk in where you don't know what's going on and you don't know where to go. We have volunteers who welcome you and tell you, Hey, welcome, welcome to come welcome to type Thursday. Uh, are you showing, are you showing work today? They say yes or no, you know, whatever. Then you say, great. Well, here you listen, here's the coat check over here. Food and drinks are over here and we're going to start critique at eight o'clock, for example. Oh, great. Yeah. Really subtle, really simple stuff. And then basically, and then also what you do, we have volunteers who are specifically tasked to, if the, if someone wallflowers, you know, kind of like yeah. gas their drink and goes to the wall, goes to the corner of the, of the, of the room, they're instructed to go talk to them. <laughs> you know, just go talk to them and if find out what they're interested in and introduce them to someone who is into the same thing. That's uh, a great idea. Yeah, it's very, so, very simple, but very effective. So what about sponsors? Because I noticed that a lot of times you have sponsors, like Adobe Type Kit was yeah. a sponsor. And yeah, how, do you, how does that work? And you have three locations, right? You have LA, you have New York, and you have San Francisco. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So uh, LA is actually opening in March. Its first event is March 2nd. Cool. New York, yeah. And yeah, so the sponsorship business. So we have a couple, we got a couple things. One is we, we support the type industry by having a, what's called a, a foundry sponsor. That's, that's for free, it's in kind. What basically the deal is, uh, we, as a gift to people showing up, type foundries have, have swag items, we give them swag items. So it helps stay. So when you come to an event, you usually get a swag item with you from that nice. sponsor uh, when you attend. So it helps the foundries out, getting their work out. And it, it gives, it's a nice present to encourage people to come. It was a very effective strategy in the beginning to help drive interest and to ensure people were going to show up. You know, because you're in New York City, especially, like you got to pull something in here to get people to show up on a Thursday. <laughs> so the swag was a way to pull it off. Uh, but that's really, that's really straightforward. So is that, is, is getting those, like, so say New York, yeah. is that, was that like all you, you had to get with people and get sponsors? Cause that's like yes. a full-time job. <laughs> Are you kidding? Diane, of course. I mean, listen, I have a team now. God bless them. Really? Like <laughs> it, it, it's impossible. Like it's, it's growing too much. Like it's no way. Like there's a team in San Francisco. It's a fantastic team in San Francisco, a huge, fantastic team in LA. And New York has a team now too, but in the beginning it was just me. And right. what ended up happening was I was running like a madman, doing all everything you're saying, hosting the event, being the critique lead, being the MC, like doing everything for like the first eight months of the event, of the project, basically. And that's a and ton, and you're working, so oh, yeah. it's not like you're. I mean, you're not getting paid for this, no. right? Yeah. No, no one's getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
what ended up happening was people were who were, were born to the vision. They saw what we were doing. And they saw me just basically like you lead by example. So if you're, mm. if you're killing yourself and then you go to someone, uh, the, main, the first person who joined the team was a great friend of mine, Julie Thompson, who's a photographer. And I reached out to her when we got our first sponsor, Dribble. Dribble was one of our first sponsors. Um, and I said, hey, Dribble's coming to sponsor us. Would you be, could you back, could, would you be interested in photo photographing the event? And she's like, absolutely, Tom, I'm there. So she saw me hustling and she backed up and she saw the, the and basically when you win, more people want to join you. So as you're, as you're pushing yourself and always pushing yourself really hard, people join you on the project. And when it starts with mm -hmm. one person, becomes two, then five. So now I team up for like, I think their team is now like 20 people. It's kind of wow. amazing. <laughs> so, so how did it go? Can you switch off back yeah, sure. so we can see your face? Of course. <laughs> um, so how did it go back from, I mean, from New York and then to San Francisco? Like how did that get? started was it type it cooper or type san francisco really was a, started a driving force or did like rachel was she elnar with um type ed was she a driving force and she had come and experienced it or saw what you were doing online and said hey can we tap into this how did that happen so what happened was um a former mentor a, a mentor not former a current a mentor of mine in type design del worthington of del's oh. fonts he but he basically been watching what I'm doing in New York and he saw the success coming out of it. And he reached out to me and he said, Hey Tom, would you consider opening a chapter in San Francisco? I'd be interested in leading that. I was like, absolutely. So let's get started. <laughs> so that's it. It's really how I went down. And then Rachel, great person. I'm glad you know her. And she was a, basically I was, I was a, a colleague of mine recommended her. She said, you need to talk to her. This is right up her alley. She'd be a great person for this team. I contacted her. We had a conversation, and it's, it lines up. Our missions line up very mm -hmm. clearly, and it just comes together. It's kind of amazing. It, it's in some ways, it's it's so simple, but also a very big part of it was. He's very big part is you got to lead first. Like you got to lead. Like when you're making something out of this is out of nothing. Nothing. There is no, like out of thin air. This all came out of. It's fundamentally from deep commitment to relationships with people. You know, and always investing in people. A big thing, and it started mainly with getting New York to a certain level, and then certain, then people started backing it up. It started other chapters. Because why I would do read things like after Type Thursday events, I would take out people who people who critiqued, who got critiqued. I would take them out to coffee. Mm. I'd reach out to them like, hey, I want, I want to take out the coffee. You know, I would just spend an afternoon with them, get a coffee with them, and talk to them. You know, find out what they go. Just became friends basically with a lot of them, um, and. They just really appreciate that kind of investment in them. It's a big thing. When you invest in others, it gets paid back to you, but not immediately. That's kind of the key, and that's the part people get tripped up on. They're too focused on short-term reward instead of like a long-term But long you're a long-term, yeah, you're a long-term guy, so it's, yes. it's, which is great, but it is really unique. A lot of people don't have that mentality. They're like, well, what can it do for me right now? And not saying, hey, this is going to really pay off in 10 years, or this is going to pay off because sometimes it gets hard. And of I know course. when, so when you're building this, you, did you keep like really good notes and Hey, this really worked. Or when, when somebody wanted to open, when Dell wanted to open a chapter in San Francisco, did you send them anything? Like, here's how we did it. Here's kind of the structure. Yeah. Well, here's a big thing too, as, uh, as you grow, there's just, there's growing pains. Like there's, there's, you're asking actually two questions, Diane. Like one is the statement about invest long-term versus short-term, totally natural. In fact, actually that's the bit, before you can lead others, you got to lead yourself. And right. fundamentally, that comes down to coming to that conclusion. 
Now, ideally, the best answer is you've resolved your short-term issue, so then you can think long-term. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I don't know, man. Like, you, you can you can do it both ways. You can either get your short-term issues resolved, so you can focus long-term, or you can you can be like me and you you just choose to suffer and you just will your way through it and just say, "I believe I can do this," and then just like make it happen, basically. Uh, I can't really see much about it because that's, that's the truth of the matter. To me, that's a very visionary way of thinking because you have a very clear vision of what it could be with time and effort and work and people, right? And you knew what the value would bring to the community as type designers, as regular designers, as UX, UI. You knew what that would bring if people just came enough, right? Sort of. I mean, I, I think fundamentally, I had to, here's what I did know. I believed in people. Right, I believe in investing in people. That's what I knew. Now, Type Thursday, would it succeed? Would it, would it become what it is and what it's going to be in the future? I didn't know. I didn't. Know. I had no idea it was going to go past like ten people in a room. Like there, there was at one point well, where like I'm used to like it was success when five people came or ten people. It was like oh my god, ten people came. You know what I mean? Like, but I guess maybe you didn't know it would become this. But now that it, um. It's like you, you're able to grow your dream or the vision as it continues to grow. But you also knew what nugget to chew on. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Well, basically, just you get wins. I mean, the, 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 the metric is, does things move forward? You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of the key. So, for example, if you're making a pitch for a sponsorship and you get the sponsorship, you did something right. <laughs> right. Um, and there's a whole bunch. Like, that's like a whole different conversation. Like, that's called, like... Uh, real nitty gritty hustle moves that it's like a separate conversation than itself. But that's the metric. The metric of success is does do things move forward? Do you get the result you were going for? And do, does the wheels of movement start going your, in your way? Um, and, but along the way is that usually when that happens, there's also like a whole new pro- set of problems. So like when Delph came in, yeah, I had to document what I did. Like versus I was just doing stuff on the fly. Mm-hmm. I had to document it. And then when Rachel joined on, there were all these ambiguities that came up because there was growth since Delve came, for example, that Rachel had to get caught up with and we didn't have it documented. So then it was like a scramble to get that together. And if we're gonna, and then, you know, as we continue to grow Type Thursday, I expect if we get more chapters involved, this is gonna continue as as we go, you know? And that's part of the, that's the challenge, but that's part of the fun of it from my perspective. Right. And that's right. a big thing. I will say one thing I do, and I coach and mentor other designers. Uh, a huge, huge thing I say is designers have a huge problem with conflict. Mm. right and you don't here's the thing no one likes conflict it sucks however um there's a choice you can make you can either say like i don't like this i want to avoid it or i can say there's an opportunity there's an opportunity to learn there's an opportunity to grow if there's no conflict then there's no growth it's just that simple like you're not going to win like you right. you win by going through the conflict and not by and i don't mean necessarily always like hard nasty methods right but it does mean a certain kind of uh, encouragement and a certain kind of exuberance to face the challenge of the day. <laughs> right. If I could say, if I could say that in any other way, because um, that's. But just it's the, growth. You know. But growth hurts, right? Of when, it does. And it's, but it, it and Rachel's here now, actually. Yes. So hey, Rachel. What's up? <laughs> but I do think I think that people. They, from the outside, they think that it's like, oh my gosh, glorious, right? But there's a ton of work that goes into it. And to make it seem so welcoming and warm and very actually learning, there's a ton of learning going on on Type Thursdays. There was a ton of work that came from that and a ton of experiences and 
missteps and miscommunications or um, conflicts, like you're saying. And we do hate conflict. I don't know. I guess lawyers might like conflict. Those would be the only people I can really see, seem to think that would like really like it, I guess. But You know, it's funny. Most, if you read the books of most CEOs or founders or any larger movements or events, they always are pro-conflict one way or the other. <laughs> I, I noticed that from reading books about that. Because, you know, because that's, it's in the conflict, things grow, things happen, true. things change. Um, and if that's the and, and fundamentally, when you're starting a new project, anything that has a larger scope than oneself, right? Right. You're making a proposition to say the world, you're making an odd statement how the world ought to be in some way. The trend, the movement between what could be and what is, that, that change, that's inherently a natural thing of, of growth and development or con- and conflict that needs to be resolved, you know, because that's the thing. That's it. But at least I can tell you from my experience is that done the right way, it's super rewarding and amazing. And I think you could do really great things in your life if you choose to go down that path. So one thing I didn't get to ask you the other day that I wanted to, and after we kept talking, I was like, oh man, I wish I could have asked it, but I guess I get to ask it today. Yeah, I ask it now. So, um, and I can't remember where I wrote this down. Oh, well, so, so you also do Font Tribune, which is a YouTube channel, which you're doing once a week. You have a video where you're actually, um, you know, and you're also teaching. You do all these things. And a lot of it actually comes back to education. And you're giving away a lot of absolute amazing free content um, that really could help people if they take advantage of it. But how do you break up your day? Because you're still designing type and you're still doing work. Yes. I mean, you have to eat. <laughs> I do. I mean, let's put, I'll be quite frank with you. There's costs. There, mm. Like, you could do a lot in life, but ultimately there's a cost to be made in your decision. For example, I'm not married yet. Like, and there's a, there are reasons for that. You know, there, in my own personal life, quite frankly, there's, like, my day starts at 5 a.m. every day. It's a 5 a.m. day, and it just, like, marches on forever. And I'm, there's no one telling me to get up at 5 a.m. I make that choice. Because, but right. there's so much to be done in the day, there's no other choice. If I right. ever fall off that horse, I'm host. There goes the day, basically. You know, and I have like constant structures. I'm part of these mastermind groups. I have like team meetings with my with Type Thursday that hold me accountable. Even Type Thursday itself is accountable to me in some way. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like you build all these structures to force you to have to keep committing and to keep right. moving forward. Right. Um, so, in terms of your question, and that's actually like in terms of like how do you get yourself done? Is you build, you focus on, you admit your weakness as a human being that you're you're limited. There are costs to be made. My choice is I'm going to basically probably die young <laughs> of just from stress or just like overworking myself. But whatever, I, I this is my choice. I made my call and I'm placing my bets in life. Maybe when I'm 50, I get to chill out. But whatever, <laughs> I'm not there yet. I got 20. I got 20 years for that to happen. So we'll see what happens. Um, but the point is, like, based on my commitment, okay. Well, now I got to build some structures that are going to force me to have to get this stuff done. And that's how it goes. So it's a commitment. Like I, on my mastermind call, I have a mentor. We have a sponsor. So literally one of my members, we call each other at, at 6 a.m. And we report what we're doing on the day. I did right. this yesterday. This was the challenges. What are your thoughts on this? Great. Here's my next steps for the day. And we were doing it for about like six months. Every single day we were doing it. Wow. It was like a death. It was a death march of execution, you know, but that's how you get these great results. And that's ultimately what it comes down to is like, what game are you playing? Like, what investment are you aiming for? Like, this but doesn't make time. any Yeah. Again, time. you said it was time is your greatest asset. Yeah. 
in terms of like where you want to go with your life. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll be just simple enough. Like committing to one hour a day towards a larger project built over time is an incredible amount of time. Most people don't invest one 30 minutes to their development, reading right. a book, anything else, any small, you start small, obviously. And with the wins of career in my life that I get this, I get the privilege of more time to do these, the, do these things, you know, and that's what I'm saying. So at one point you, you only can spend, you maybe only can allocate one hour of your time per day towards this. Well, I'm in a privileged position now where I've succeeded professionally and I can spend more time on it. I still need to hustle, but not right. as much. And I still got to do the 5 a.m. death march <laughs> to get this to happen. So it's, it's incredibly, incredibly, like, again, the example of leading oneself before you lead others in movements and whatnot or projects, you got to hold yourself accountable. Right. The to-do list, the wake-up calls, you got to, like, most people can't get up at 5 a.m. Right. They can't do it. You, how, do you expect to, how do you expect to crush it in life if you can't even get up at 5 a.m.? Like, right. it's that simple. Right, right. So, but you also um, seem to keep adding things in. Uh, like the font tribute or yes. type Thursdays or um, teaching. Those are all things that maybe um, have organically happened. And I think they would have happened because I think that you were built to make those things. But um, that's a choice. Uh, and again, you just, you're exactly what you're saying. It's a, it's a compromise. It's one thing for this other thing for right now, because this is what I can do. So what made you want to do font tribute? Let me explain to everybody what Fontribute yeah. is. So Fontribute, okay, here's the thing. So overall, there's plenty, like, there's plenty of knowledge online and in, in, academ- in, in academics for type 1 classes. Here are, the ty- here are the typefaces, old style, transitional, modern, blah, blah, blah. Here are some guidelines how to use this stuff. Don't do this, do that. All that great stuff. But any kind of advanced consideration of knowledge, like that's kind of like basic literacy of type. Like, okay, we have that. There's still a lot of ground. Listen, that's still got to be done. But there's a whole group of people that's like plenty out there. I know it from teaching those classes. Right. The next step is more advanced level considerations. Like how can you discern different typefaces? How can you come to a more nuanced thinking about it? And I just know from teaching my students at Queens College that that was a constant issue is that that's like they gain that basic knowledge, but they don't have any of that more advanced way of thinking. So basically for my classes of teaching at Queens College, I kind of took the model I'd learned from we're kind of getting taking my students to contribute, which is using the power of contrast comparison, mm. because it's similar to color theory, like in color painting, painting and color, where a color by itself isolated, you can't really say that right. much about it. It's very difficult. You know, a white, like an off white. Okay. Is that, is that saturated? Is desaturated? It is like, it's a tint or a shadow. You need it in context of something else to give you a reference point. So you put up two different typefaces usually based on a theme or a topic or a concept I want to discuss about type stuff, type design, typography in some way. And then I just do analysis. I, I just play it off the analysis. This is kind of built up my cultivated knowledge of type. So it does a couple of things. One is I use terminology in context. So you get mm-hmm. to learn about, oh, when I say spine, I mean this. And when I say a right. shoulder, I mean that. Right. So because design has a language and typography has a language that, you know, if you just root memorize, you're not going to gain any real mastery of it. You have to hear it in context, like any other language. Otherwise, it doesn't do you any good. You'll memorize right. it for the exam, and then you'll lose it forever right. afterwards. So there's that. And then it's more advanced considerations. Like, hey, notice that you know, this S, lowercase s terminal was done this way, but look at the other terminals. They were done that way. How interesting. The designer chose the contrast and difference. 
like those kind of design considerations or hey like one of the one of the first posts was these two uppercase letters like these two the uppercase letters seem very similar like you, you put them next to each other like exactly like very very similar but when you go to the lowercase they're done completely different and they have a completely different voice as a type as a project because of that you know kind of getting this more like kind of that more using this like this way of thinking this kind of analytical way of looking at type to, to help encourage this more broad understanding artistic consideration of type so overall the whole pro like why Fontribute happened was it's part of that larger project of type design of, of not just type design but type Thursday to increase the appreciation and understanding of letter forms around the right. country if not the world eventually so yeah. it basically says type Thursday is one format of that Fontribute is another example of that so those, I see them all tied together under that under that umbrella so when did you stop start Fontribute and and uh, you know it was fonts and attributes? But we talked about this the other day. It's really a tribute to the font itself and and who made it and what decisions they made. And it may be as a designer, I didn't necessarily look at that because I'm not a type designer, but I use it in my work. But um, it's really this um, tribute to these fonts, right? Yes. So it's been like, I think a month and a half. So I got like six, six episodes are up. You know, they're usually about 15 minutes each. A one a week, right? Yeah, one a week. Yeah. And, and I put the link in, in the chat so people can, and it is in the show notes as well. So it's a YouTube channel. You can actually just look up Thomas Jackin or you can do Fontribute and it'll pop up. Yes, exactly. So, okay. So yeah, so it's once a week. Uh, what was the other part of the question? I apologize. I just got this. No, I, I can't remember track. either. Um, oh, yeah, about, it was about the naming, about what. Oh, yeah, yeah. It. Yes. So, yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's as you're pointing out, it's attributes, right? That's the way they're talking about it, but it's also a tribute, mm -hmm. right? It literally, it's a, literally a tribute to these type eights. So the way, the, the, the way of, it's kind of, again, like it's kind of this represent, showing how type designers think about it, how do we consider this, this, this materiality, and what are the thought process behind it? So, it pays tribute that way. Uh, by using analysis and discussion to help give a larger understanding and appreciation of the labor and thought and the real intention, intentionality in these projects, and ideally leveling up the mastery of type design of, of typographers on the, around the world, especially. I uh, think one of the most rewarding things is when people comment like, "Oh, great videos!" It's like people are starving for this kind of knowledge because this is a, mm -hmm. this is a much. It's um, the tragedy is the people who actually have the domain knowledge to talk about this the most don't have the leverage time to actually allocate to do it. That's the tragedy of it all, you know? Um, and, probably quite, and quite frankly, I committed, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> uh, and truth be told, you know, I probably, I made a commitment that I'll probably spend a year on this. Like, like mm -hmm. Monty will be like, for a year I, I was doing the Type Thursday interviews. We do an interview series on Type Thursday. I've been doing it for a year. Now I, had, I trained people to help do the interviews. Stacey Sundar is one of them. She's super fantastic. I think she's actually better than me in the interviews, but it, it'll be a similar model. I, I very much believe in this model of cultivating others. So I lead first to show how it can be done, and then I have people underneath bring, who come up the bottom and raise them up to be able to have these discussions and carry on the project so that I can, because like, as you said, there's limited time. And, right. But by doing these kind of, small steps to lead the by example and to step up. Ideally, I mean, honestly, you know, in terms of like what type Thursday's larger mission, what, are the, what is the end goal of this? Ideally is quite frankly, to create a new, a new golden age of type. I mean, we hear this, I've heard this term a lot, but here's the thing. My position is type designers, type, type, type fonts or tools to be used by others. 
So inherently it's a relationship. It's relational by default. It cannot exist by itself. It exists within a larger context. As a result, our prosperity is actually based on the success of the people we serve, mm. which are the type users. And that's a very broad amount. Of, that is a huge amount of people. As a result, if they thrive, we thrive. And by thriving, I mean a higher level of appreciation, understanding, and thinking about type and letter forms. So that's my commitment. That's part of this 10. Like now we're going past 10 years. That's like 20 to 30. <laughs> right. You know, and then who knows? From these, all these projects, ideally, there might be a new generation type designers to come out of it or typographers who have a whole new way of thinking and new ways of, of approaching and understanding type design because of these projects. I mean, that's, that's like, it's like the, the relationship I have with Josh on now a leverage scale. Because now yeah. it's just being one-to-one. -one. So, there might be someone in, in, in Indiana, for example, who sees this and gets inspired and goes down this path. And then 20 years from now, they're doing amazing projects of type design I couldn't even imagine. I guess that was one of the things that I loved. And it was an article where I think you were being interviewed or you were interviewing somebody and talked about how type now is really because so many people are able to buy fonts and use fonts. And this is definitely a conversation for the next time I interview you because yes. I, we definitely have a ton more to talk about, but it was really, it's the wild west. And that's what you're talking about. It's your, it's this golden age. It's this, it's actually a rebirth or a new birth. It's a, a realization of other users besides just designers. But then you're also, you know, it is kind of wild west where who can make these who can who can use these and how can they use these to grow businesses or create businesses and what are they doing with it and now you're giving them some very needed foundation i was talking to johnny gwen who was here earlier today and he said a lot of people will just start they want to build their business but they want to start on level three and move up instead of building a really strong firm foundation and i think that's what you're doing with font tribute that's also what you're doing with type thursday because it is a community i do believe that we are better when we are together so we are better as um type designers as regular designers as ux ui as actually all people if we come in and we have some accountability and we say hey here's what i've made can you tell me if this would be because again we we can't just look at just from our perspective i think there's a huge gap that's missing if if we do that couldn't say it better myself i absolutely i absolutely agree diane well, Thomas, thank you so much. I'm so happy that you were able to do this this Saturday, and I'm glad that Stephanie and a few other people could come in and um, see part two, which was totally, not totally the same. We covered a lot of the same things, but there definitely is still a bunch of stuff I still want to cover. So I'm going to get you back on, and I'll make sure that I there's no any issue with my fingers and hitting record. Um, for the next time, but I really, really do appreciate it. And I want to just make sure everybody hears um, on iTunes and on YouTube and on uh, rechargingyou.com you can how people can get to uh, follow you. So you can actually go to facebook.com slash type Thursdays, and that's kind of like type Thursday headquarters, right? Yep, that's correct. And then you also have on Instagram your type Thursday. Um, NYC, the New York chapter, um, Type Thursdays. Um, SF, San Francisco. Yeah. And it's just Thursday, not Thursdays. There's no right? plural. Yeah. yeah. Singular, not plural. And then um, Type Thursday, LA. And then there's also um, over in the link and in the show notes, there was the um, 
Type Thursdays, um, New York, uh, the Google uh, thing in December. And then the YouTube channel is underneath, but if you just search for uh, Thomas Jockin or Font Tribute, you can do that. And then I'm gonna actually share how people can actually follow you personally and see some of maybe the work that you're doing um, for all kinds of things that you're posting. Type Maybe some Type Thursday stuff too, but mm -hmm. you can also. So on Dribble, you're Jock in the Box, J-O-C-K-I-N, the box and then on instagram it's jock in the box again yes and then on twitter it's at thomas jockin so i hope you guys will follow and get involved and maybe even think about starting a type thursday chapter in your city hey love to hear for you if that's the case <laughs> yeah so the best way for people to do that if they wanted to is maybe go to the facebook and send type thursday the main one a message or they can go what if somebody wanted to do that what would they need to do how could they well, get in touch with you well, definitely be in contact with either me directly or type Thursday you can either contact the Facebook group or you can contact me right directly I will say before we go uh, heads up is that next week is type Thursday New York uh, that's happening on February 23rd and then the following week we both have we have an, another we have type Thursday LA starting and type Thursday New York's March is also happening then so if you hear, if you guys have, if this, if you catch us in time, go sign up. We'd love to have you come and type Thursday. It's going to be a great time. I'm super excited about it. And thank you again. Thank you, Diane, for having me on the show. It's been a really great pleasure. Absolutely. So if somebody wanted to sign up, they would go where? Sign up. Basically, the best way to do it is to go through the Facebook page, the Facebook group. That's the okay. best way to do it. Yes. So facebook.com slash type Thursdays. That's the best way, no matter where you, you're going, that's how you're going to get your ticket. Exactly. Okay. And also you can get on the email newsletter, Correct. right? Yeah, we have a mailing list. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Well, Thomas, thank you so much again. And just for anybody else, if you want to reach out to me, I'm at design recharge and then you can always send me an email at diane at recharging you.com and um we are off next week um i'm going to a, a confrontation workshop which is um hopefully it'll be interesting which i think is funny that we were just talking about that and then um we'll be back the march 1st with jason craig who is one of the most he and thomas probably are uh neck and neck in how many books they read a year like i think both of you read I, you just must be like speed readers, but I'm super slow. So, but it's really good. I think a great, uh, me and Thomas were talking about this earlier. Reading is amazing and I'm super thankful that I still read and learn. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. Jason's just started his own company and we're going to talk about making that big step out. So thank you guys for coming and thank you, Thomas, for doing this twice. And, um, <laughs> I will have a good time confronting people, I'm sure, Rachel. Yes. Conflict <laughs> but, is the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer, right? Yes. Well, thank you guys, and we'll see you next week or in a, March 1st. In two weeks. Take <laughs> yeah. care, guys. Bye.